Now, I may be alone, but I love rocket demonstrations. So with the beautiful live YouTube channel of NASA or SpaceX, I love when they launch a rocket or launch a satellite or launch humans to the space station. But this week tops it all. To see a customer rocket ship go to space, Virgin Galactic went to space early in the way, was just incredible. To think a few years ago it was fantasy that we would ever be able to go to space as just normal people, right? Now you can buy a ticket, very expensive, to go to space, lower space, uh, on a Virgin Galactic rocket. I just think that's incredible. Now, what's the purpose of a demonstration? An iPhone demonstration, the Virgin Galactic demonstration. What's the purpose of a demonstration? Well, the purpose is we move from the whiteboard to reality. We move from talking about something to seeing it happen. A demonstration shows that something works. Now, we are starting tonight a new series or going back to an old series in Romans. Romans is a letter. The Apostle Paul wrote it to a church in Rome. We all know where Rome is. And we're reading the back half of the letter for the next nine weeks. And here's the big idea. The Christian life is a demonstration of what God has achieved through the work of Jesus. When people look at you guys, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, they see the impact of Jesus in your life. Christianity is not a theory. It's not an idea on a whiteboard. It's not a truth you just sign up to. Faith in Jesus transforms people. And our lives, your lives, demonstrate what faith in Jesus does to a normal person. Feels scary, doesn't it? I was doing leader training this week for Church at Nine, and I explained that the back end of Romans is about us demonstrating the impact of Jesus, and a leader just stood up and went, I don't know if I can be a leader. I feel like a terrible demonstration. Another person stood up and said, How do I know if my faith is real? If I'm demonstrating faith, how do I know that's real? And can I just say, they are beautiful questions. They are the questions of people willing to listen to God's word and go, this is not just something I do every Sunday night at 6.30. I'm not going through the routine. No, no, this is real. I am demonstrating something that matters. We're going to answer those questions over the next nine weeks. If they're the questions you're answering, they're good questions. We're going to answer them over the next nine weeks. We're starting tonight. Four points. Number one, the source of Christian living. Secondly, the mark. Thirdly, the challenge. Fourthly, the evidence. Ready? Number one, the source of Christian living. Here we go. Verse one of chapter 12. Put your finger on it in your Bibles or on your devices. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Paul begins chapter 12 with a therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay? 
because it's always saying something. And what it's saying here is to understand the second half of Romans, you have to understand the first half. You've got to read part one before you read part two. And that's really important because for some reason, us as Christians, we, we get this, we get really mixed up and we think that all the kind of do's and don'ts of our faith, what we, what we do for the Lord and what we don't do kind of happen in a vacuum. If you ever get to teach kids church or you ever teach SRE and you ask, how do you become a Christian? Someone will say, obey the Ten Commandments. We've disconnected the do's and don'ts from something. And what Paul wants to say here is you can't do that because everything that came before informs the do's and don'ts. We're going to talk about lots of do's and don'ts over the next nine weeks. The back end of Romans is very practical, but we must start tonight knowing that they are a response or they flow from what's come before. And we see what it's come before, don't we? See it there? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. God's mercy is what shapes everything. Now, what are God's mercies? It could be from chapters 9 to 11 where God's mercies bring Chinese and Indigenous Australians and English and the Americans, and he kind of, God, welds them together as God's people, Jew and Gentile together. It could be that, but probably more likely it's all of chapter 1 to 11. So in God's mercy is kind of a capture phrase for all that's come before. And I just summarised it for you. If we were to break chapter 1 to 11 into three points, number one, we see our need for God's mercy. Remember chapter 3, verse 10? There is no one righteous, not even one. Every single human being at Orange High has sinned. Every single person at church at 6.30 has sinned and is under judgment. That's why we need mercy. But God's great act of mercy, chapter 3, 21 to 26, 3, 21 to 26, God's great act of mercy, what does God do? God steps into history in the person of Jesus. And when he steps into the history in the person of Jesus, Jesus then dies on a cross. Why does Jesus die on the cross? To take the sentence for sinners to take the punishment for every sin you've ever done. And what do you get? Not judgment. You get mercy. What is mercy? 100% forgiveness. Complete. But it's more than that. More than that. Because do you know what God does when he looks at you now? If you've got faith in Jesus, God looks at you and he says, they're righteous. They're perfect. And you say, God, you're loopy. That's not, no, no, no. But he's not loopy because do you know what happens? When you have faith in Jesus, God gives you the righteousness of Jesus. Incredible. You now walk around with Jesus' righteousness. So when the creator of the universe looks at you, he goes, oh, they're righteous, holy, acceptable. And then from chapter 4 to 11, we see the impact of God's mercy. It's incredible. You should read it this week. Incredible. Chapter 5, we have complete and unbreakable peace with our creator. Chapter 6, we are freed from the domineering power of sin and death. Chapter 8, 
God dwells in us by his spirit. Chapter 8, we have a new identity as the people of God. Chapter 8, great chapter. We have an unbreakable hope. You can die, but you cannot lose your hope. Chapter 1 to 11 is the mercies of God. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, brothers and sisters, look at the mercy of God. Look what Jesus has done for you and in you. The illustration is basically whatever your kind of picture is that is on your wall, maybe a a hero, a sporting hero, um, when you get married, you often take a photo of your wedding day and you stick it on your wall. And it's kind of a weird thing to do, but do you know why they do it? You do it because every day you look at it and go, I made a promise to that woman. She made a promise to me. And I'm going to remember that. That photo helps me remember that. Or you may have photos of your grandparents or your parents, and that photo reminds you of the love that they had for you. What Paul is saying here is put Romans 1 to 11 on your wall as big as possible because that is what God has done for you. And it is the source of your Christian living. It is why you do the do's and the don'ts. It's why you guys say no to sex before marriage or no to pornography or yes to honesty or yes to telling the truth on your tax. The reason you do that is because of the mercy of God. And it's completely radical. It's so radical. You guys know some Buddhist friends at school or some Hindu friends. You may meet a Muslim one day. These guys will meet them in the Middle East. But they live their life. They do lots of sacrifices. They do lots of very, very sincere pilgrimages. Why? To change their status between them and God. They work hard to change that status. The secularists, people who don't believe in God, they work really hard sacrificing time and energy to get the approval of somebody, the likes of somebody. But you come to church every Sunday night and there's nothing you do in this room that changes your status between you and God. Nothing. Actually, there's nothing all week you do that changes your status between you and God. Because God is merciful, you are righteous. You are accepted. You are forgiven. It's all Jesus and it never changes. So if you have fear in your obedience, I better obey God because you'll get angry. You've got to get rid of it. If you've got guilt-based obedience, I've got to change to make him, got to get rid of it. There is no place for fear and guilt-based obedience in the Christian life because the source of Christian living is the mercy of God. And all we do is overflow that in our ethics. The point two, the mark of Christian living. Guys, what would you put in the gap? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer, what would you put in the gap? Kind of icky, isn't it? Dirty tonight to say, hey, God, I'm going to put 90 minutes, Sunday night, 6.30 to 8. God, I'm going to give 3% of my income. 
God, I'm going to wear a T-shirt. It's icky, isn't it? Because it just kind of, once you see God's mercy, you can't, you can't do that. Look what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I love what he does here. He takes us to the temple, Jewish temple. Most of us never been to a Jewish temple, but it was full of worshippers and it was full of sacrifices. Okay, picture it. And what Paul says is, you don't ever have to offer an animal sacrifice. You don't have to offer a sin sacrifice. Jesus did it. You offer your bodies in response to God's mercy, thanksgiving, devotion. Why bodies? Well, is there anything or anywhere you're going to go this week without your body? No. You go to school with your body. Go to work with your body. You go online with your body. Your body is there as you're online. Everywhere you go this week, your body is there. And that's why it's called 24-7 logic. Christians offer their whole selves to God. And look what Paul says, we are a living sacrifice. Very deliberate there, living, not dead. We're not a dead animal. We're not offering a dead animal. We're a living sacrifice, which means we do it day after day after day till we see Jesus. And it's holy and acceptable. Love that. It's not a sacrifice. I'm not doing stuff to God to hope he will like me. No, no, I'm offering it already holy and acceptable. He will accept your sacrifices. Because already holy and acceptable. And then notice how the verse ends of this. This is your true and proper worship. Some of your Bibles say spiritual worship, but true and proper is the right translation. Offering your whole self is the only reasonable, logical, rational thing you can do if you understand chapters 1 to 11. If you've received Jesus' love for you, you will offer your bodies. You'll offer your whole life because of what God has done for you. He's loved you with everything. Anything less is irrational. Now, those of you who are teenagers or young adults, you use language a little bit funny, okay? Makes the old people cranky, no problems, right? They'll get over it, okay? But you'll use kind of the word worship in lots of different ways. Can I just say, that's okay. Don't hear grumpy Ed telling you what to say. Don't hear that tonight. But if when you sing with the band in non-COVID times and we call it worship, it is. We are giving worship to our God. Or if you call tonight worship, that's okay too. We are participating in worship. But don't let your brains think that 90 minutes or four songs is worship full stop. Because it's not, is it? 24-7 logic. Jesus calls us to offer all of our lives as worship. Not just the experience of singing great music. Not just turning up to church. All of it. Now, some of you are sitting there going, this is too full on for me. I can only fit in 90 minutes a week for Jesus. I'm a busy person. I've got an HSC to do. You know, like, it doesn't get busier than that. But just kidding. Um, like, I get it, right? It sounds big. The thing is, 
We need to realize that every single person in orange is worshipping. You hear that? Everyone is worshipping. David David Foster Wallace says it really helpfully. I'll read it to you. In the day-to-day trenches of adult and teenager life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some form of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or the wicked mother, anything else you worship will let you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you've got enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure. You'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to numb numb you to your fear. Worship your brains, your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, that they're unconscious. We don't even realise we're worshipping. Profound. Because you look at the kids at Orange High or your schools or your unis, you go, oh, they're not worshipping, we worship. No, no, everyone's worshipping. Everyone's giving their life to something to get meaning. So my question tonight to you guys is, who are you worshipping Monday to Saturday? Because it's utterly logical if you've received the mercy of Jesus, offer your whole selves to him every minute of every day. This is the mark of Christian living. All right, I want you to take you into ancient history, 1962, okay? And there was a TV show called Candid Camera, okay? Think pre-reality TV, right? So, um The Kardashians didn't invent reality TV, just so you know. And what they did in in Candid Camera was they set up a camera and they made a scene that would often just try and make people laugh. But sometimes they did social experiments. Okay? You ready for one? Watch the screen. Profound, isn't it? The pressure to conform. Three actors stand towards the back of the lift and that was enough to convince a totally normal human being to do a really weird thing. If you ever get to go on a lift, I haven't found a lift in orange yet, but if you ever find a lift in orange, try it sometime. You know, like, weird. You see, Christians in Rome, Christians in Orange, we do our life in a lift. And do you know what? Most of the people in our lift are turning to the back of the lift. See what Paul says in verse 2? Do not conform to the pattern of the world. 
The word world there is not neutral. The world is the world that loves sin and self and hates God's law. It's the world that proclaims that what is good made by God is evil and what is evil is good. So at the moment, infidelity is good. Lying is good. Greed is good. That's people looking at the back of a lift. Now, for Paul, he knows that there's pressure. The habits and the cultural traditions and the celebrations, they, can, they, they pressure us to turn around. And what Paul says is that's not a problem. You see, we have, Christ has delivered us from sin and death. We now live in the new life of the Spirit and we live in what we call the overlap of the ages where Adam's realm, sin, still exists and Christ's realm has started and we live in the middle. And what that means is our world still has sin, our world still has evil and your bodies, saved, are still attracted to sin. You have impulses or temptations to sin. And so Paul's challenge is very simple, isn't it? Do not conform. Fight the pressure to turn to the back of the lift tomorrow. Instead, look at the rest of the verse, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Love that. Instead, be transformed. It's the Greek word metamorphos, which means transformed living. The Christian life is not to be a chameleon kind of blending into the background. It is to be a caterpillar moving into a butterfly, being transformed into something different. Now, how does that happen? In 2 Corinthians, it helps us. Paul helps us there. And he says, we, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What it says there is, once you see Jesus, oh, I get it, God then starts working in you to make you more like Jesus. He is working in you to transform you. The power to change is not in us, from us, sorry. God is doing the changing. But how does God do it? See there back in Romans? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. What God does is take our dead conformist Romans 1 mind and rewire it so we will listen to God's word. You see, Christian living is not from the guts, not from just your feelings. I feel like doing this for the Lord. No, no, Christian living starts with your mind and God rewinds your mind, but it's not intellectual. It's not being smart. What it means is your mind is trained by God as you listen to him to live like Jesus. So as you listen to God's word, he helps you have goals that please the Lord. Do the HSC in a way that pleases the Lord. Date like it pleases the Lord. Use the internet like it pleases the Lord. Have the future and time and sex and marriage in a way that is like Jesus because he's transforming you from the inside 
out as he rewires you to listen to him. Challenging. Hard. But the God, the Spirit, is in you. And he is at work by his word. So point four, the evidence of Christian living. As we read through Romans 12 to 16, this term, we are going to focus on one particular area of life. Can you imagine what it might be? What would be the kind of one area? Relationships. That's what God's going to talk to us about. Our relationships with each other. God, we demonstrate God's mercy to us in how we relate as church at 6.30, in how we relate to people who don't like us and and the way we relate to our government. But it's not going to start with them. Do you know where it starts? It starts with your relationship with yourself. Look at verse 3. But by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, clear judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. You see, the mercy of God transforms your understanding of self. Incredible. Because without God, you would be like Adam and Eve full of pride, a false view of self, a view that have you more important than God and more important than other people. All sin flows from that, a wrong view of self. And what God does is say, I am going to help you have a clear understanding of yourself because you have faith in Jesus. What that means is you look in the mirror and honestly you say, I'm a sinner. That's the honesty. I I can't justify it saying I'm better than the person next to me. No, I am a sinner and I deserve judgment. That's honesty. That's what faith in Jesus teaches us. But it doesn't stop there. Because remember, when you look in the mirror and you've received God's mercy, you can say, I am righteous. I am adopted. I'm forgiven. You see, the mercy of God says, I don't have a low view of myself. I'm not worthless. I'm not evil in that true sense. But it also says you can't have a high view of yourself, that I am so much better than everyone else in orange. No, it gives you an honest view of self, sinner, under judgment, but righteous, forgiven, adopted. And when you get that, do you know what it changes? It changes your relationships with each other. You will never come to church at 6.30 ever again for yourself. You'll never come with a consumeristic attitude where Church has to entertain me or be good for me or I'll go down to the road to a different church. You'll never do that again because the gospel has taught you an honest understanding of self. That church doesn't exist for me. But in verse 5, we belong to each other. That God has made us into an interdependent body, equally saved, yet diverse, different, 
complex, but we need each other. And all those verses about gifts, all they're saying is this, you come to church to use your gifts to promote yourself. That's what it's, is that what it says? You use your gifts, encouragement, teaching, sound, prayer, generosity, whatever it is, lifting chairs, you use your gifts to help others because you understand yourself and you understand that I am saved not to promote me but to help everyone else in this room. There's a famous English guy. His name's John Stott. He's with the Lord now. He says this, what does the church look like at 6.30? Our feet will walk in his path. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up the fallen. Our arms will embrace the lovely and unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distress. Our eyes will look humble and patiently towards God together. That's what Church 630 looks like when the mercy of God does its work. So 20 minutes ago, we started with the question, what impact does Jesus have? What would Paul say? Here's what Paul said. He'd say, hey, come and look at church at 6.30. Just watch them for a night. And what you see is you see older people loving younger people and younger people loving older people and people helping each other and people talking to each other. That's the mercy of God in action. How good is that? Two months, I love coming to church here and watching you guys and being part of seeing God do his thing. It's incredible. You know what Paul said? He said, go to their growth groups. Weird groups of people never would be friends, praying for each other, sharing each other's burdens. That's the mercy of God at work. And then Paul would say, hey, go and look at their Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. You'll see the impact of God's mercy there. You'll see how they comment towards each other because the mercy of God changes them there. And then you'll say, oh, go to Macca's on a Sunday night and listen to their conversations because the mercy of God impacts their conversations even at Macca's. Then go to the DPI and see where they work and see how they treat their fellow co-workers. And then go to the hospital and see how they treat their patients because the mercy of God is affecting every single relationship imperfectly, but genuinely. Because God's mercy transforms people. Christian life is a demonstration of what God has achieved through his son, Jesus. Gracious God, we just so love you. We know who we are. We can fake it online. We can fake it at work. We can fake it at school, but we can't fake it before you. We know who we are, but we also know the beautiful, abundant mercy that we could be called righteous and forgiven and adopted by Jesus. Oh, it's so good, Lord. Please help us not to conform. Please help us be transformed. Please help us to demonstrate the wonders of Jesus' mercy in every minute of our life.